Father, we thank you for your church existing only because your spirit indwells us and keeps us saved until our bodies are redeemed. We thank you for the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has released the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we're grateful that he has worked and given us passion and desire to be here. We thank you, God, for the way that he loves us through the fellowship of one another and the way that he refuels our heart's devotion through the preaching and singing of the word. Thank you for instruments and voices and the gift of music that causes us to hear the great singer of heaven himself, Christ the Lamb, the Lion, Aslan, Jesus Messiah, singing throughout the universe today a song of hope, a song of beauty, a song of victory. So now we ask for this animated and redeemed lump of clay called a pastor, that you, O Holy Spirit, would touch my mind and my tongue and their ears and their heart so that we would have a deep affection for Jesus Christ. It is our privilege to pray, Lord, for those who are hearing the word today at risk of life, for those who've already paid a price of intense suffering around the world. Thank you that victory is coming soon for them, but until, Lord, you release them from their assignment on earth, would you empower them by the Holy Spirit to serve you well, better than ever. May we know you better than ever, serve you better than ever, because we see you more than ever. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Over the next few weeks, we're going to immerse ourselves in one of, the greatest one of the greatest prayers of the Bible, the final nine verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And if you've ever wanted to know how to pray for somebody you love, somebody in your family, uh, how to pray for your friends, how to pray for one another in the church, the final nine verses of Ephesians 1 are probably the pattern of the greatest prayer for the church ever recorded in Scripture. Paul says it like this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at four great things that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He prays for their knowledge and their hope and their inheritance and in and their power, and that's all included, verses 15 through verse 22. But before he releases this beautiful fountain of prayer, he reminds us of the foundation of praise that gives him the confidence to pray great and mighty things for this church. And that's why he begins his whole prayer for this reason. He is reminding us, I am praying big and mighty things because of the reason that I just spent 200 words writing about in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Over the past month, I have given copies of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, to about three or four different people that I was counseling or fellowshipping with, and 
I gave him copies that I had marked up and all the things that had caused me to rejoice in our salvation. And I, I encourage you, if you have missed the first part of this series, go to the website, and we're grateful for the recordings that are there. And go back and listen to all the truth that's packed in these 200 words of celebration. If you missed it, Paul basically celebrates three things that God has done in forming a foundation of celebration. He rejoices in God's choosing, God's cleansing, and God's completing. God's choosing. Ephesians 1 verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. How merciful is God that before you were even born, before you even knew that guilt would one day come chasing after you to haunt you, God had already opened the doors of his kingdom and said, come inside and be safe. God's choice Second, God's cleansing. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In order to cleanse you of guilt that would disqualify you from entering the gates in the city of God, He has provided a place where you can go every moment of the day and wash your soul. The blood of Christ. And finally, God's completion to ensure that we are going to arrive at the city of God, He gives us His Spirit. When you believed, Ephesians 1.13, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the sealing of God's Spirit and His work in our life, but it was just right at that borderline, which is always difficult with us in the calendar the church year, when you are gone on spring vacation. Sometimes we miss you at the front, sometimes we miss you at the end, so I wanted to review a little bit about the sealing and the guarantee of God's Spirit that will ensure we arrive in heaven. One, I told you before, one of my favorite books, maybe my all-time book I've ever read outside the Bible is Pilgrim's Progress. The story of Christian on his way from earth to heaven. And I love that moment when he is laden down heavy with a sack of guilt on his back. He arrives at a tall hill and on top of the hill he looks and he sees a cross. And as soon as he sees the cross on top of the hill, the sack falls off of his back. The guilt rolls down the hill. He's given a new set of clothes and he's given a document in his hand. And at the end of his life, when he crosses the river of death and arrives at the city of God, there's only one thing that will make sure that he's allowed to go into the city of God. He possesses the sealed document. This is what Paul is talking about with the Holy Spirit. The only way you'll ever enter God is if he sees the Holy Spirit that has entered your life and has sealed you. Do you have the Holy Spirit in your life today? It's the most important question you could ever ask. Does the Holy Spirit live in my body? And the Bible says if you have believed, you've come to a place in your life where you have no reliance in your own goodness and your self-righteousness but you have totally been aware of how weak and frail is your flesh and you've placed all your confidence in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you have received the seal of the Holy Spirit and He will protect you from all the judgment of God to come. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God promised that Jerusalem, because of its faithlessness, would be, would be severely judged. But there would be people who would be spared from that judgment, those who had a special mark on their body. 
Ezekiel 9, go throughout the city, God commands an angel. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. This is the picture of what's going to happen at the end of history. Only those who have been sealed by God's Spirit will be saved from His judgment. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, there are only two marks that you can have on your body, on your soul, either the mark of Jesus or the mark of the beast. And look what happens to those who are sealed by the beast. Revelation 14, 9, if anyone worships the beast, the, the devil and the power of the world, and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. So how is it with you today? Do you have the Holy Spirit or are you marked by the beast? Do you belong to the world? Does the world know you as its own or does God know you as his own? Look what happens if you're marked with Christ in Revelation at the end. Verse 22, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They are marked as well. And they will reign forever and ever. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as belonging to Christ. There are two great indicators you've been marked or sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Number one, we saw in Ezekiel chapter 9, you will grieve over your sin. I woke up at 3 o'clock this one night this week, grieving over an incompleteness in my life and, and how sweet it was to do business with God in the early morning hours and to release that back to the forgiveness of Christ. If the Spirit is working in your life, you will grieve over, over sin you've not taken care of. And secondly, if you have the Spirit of God in your life, you will have a fascination with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to be seen. Today you can see me on, on the stage because of the lights that are that are hidden. You don't see those lights, do you? All you see is me. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. He doesn't want to be seen. He simply wants to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ. So if you have been marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, he will put all the attention on Christ. You'll see more and more of Christ. You'll have great affection for Christ. You'll more and more appreciate the identity of Christ and the work of Christ to save you from sin. You'll value his peace more than anything in the world. You'll be proud of him. You'll want to serve him, and you'll want to celebrate him with God's people. So when history is over, how will it be with you? Mark of the beast or the mark of God's Holy Spirit? If you've turned from the world and placed your faith in Christ, he has marked you and with the Spirit. And it's the guarantee that you'll arrive in heaven, a guarantee. Ephesians 1.13, when you believed the gospel, you were marked with the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of our bodies that's coming upon our death, the redemption of those who are God's possession, a deposit guaranteeing. The word deposit from uh, the Greek word arabon, which is, which is a down payment the Holy Spirit is the down payment that He will finish what He started in your life. 
Why do we use a down payment in our life? You, you, you go and you, you look at a house and you, you make a down payment or you give some earnest money to the owner or to the real estate company. And, and why do you do that? Because you say, I'm coming back to buy the house. Or if you're in love and you want to get married, a guy goes to a store, he may not, have the, he may not pay for the whole ring, but he'll make a down payment. He's telling the jeweler, I'm coming back. To pick up that ring in full. The promise, the guarantee, the arabon, the deposit, the earnest of the Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, I'm coming back for you. Think about this situation. You're driving down a road. All of a sudden your car lurches a little bit and then it stops and you realize that you took off from the house and didn't look at your gas gauge and you're out of gas. So you're about a mile from the nearest gas station, and so you walk there, and unfortunately when you get there, you only have $3 in your wallet. They don't take credit cards. It's an old country store. And even if you had enough money to buy all the gas you could, there's no way. You don't have anything to carry it in back to your car. But the gas station owns one gas can. And so you ask them, could I buy $3 worth of gas, and could I borrow your gas can? And when I fill my car up, I'll come back and return my gas can. And in order for you to convince them that you will return with their one gas can, you whip out your driver's license and say, I'm going to leave my driver's license here. Why would you do that? Because that driver's license is so important to you, you're not going to not come back and get it. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and God places his Holy Spirit in you, it is God's way of saying, my spirit is so precious to me, there's no way I'm going to abandon you. I'm coming back because my spirit is the deposit living in your body. God has placed his spirit in you as a pledge that he's coming back to finish what he started. I desire to glorify God. I desire to resist temptation. I desire to endure trials, but the source of my hope is never my faithfulness to God. The source of my hope is that He has placed a deposit of the Spirit of God in me, and that's why He's coming back to take me home. He will come back for you because He's placed His Spirit in you. In a world of painful trials and unremitting temptations, it would be pure agony if you had to depend on your own faithfulness for God to return and receive you. But he's given his spirit as a guarantee, a pledge, a down payment that you will see the glory of God. I love how John Calvin talks about our unreliability and God's reliability. We are so frail that the devil will overcome us every minute of time if... God does not hold us up with a strong hand. As soon as we were in the way of salvation, we should be at once turned out of it by our own frailty. If God did not so work in us that we might, by His Spirit, overcome all the assaults of the devil and of the world. And so day by day and week by week, the Holy Spirit uses a myriad of different things to keep you on the path toward the glory 
of heaven. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3. And we who contemplate the Lord's glory, it's what you do in worship, you contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing or one after another glimpse of his glory, which comes from the Lord who is what? The Spirit is what you've done today. You have another glimpse of God and you're being transformed one more Sunday into the complete image that you will one day be and enjoy. Every day the Spirit will use Bible reading and prayer. Every week He's going to use corporate worship. Every week He's going to use small groups. He's going to use emails and text and songs and conversations with believers at lunch and breakfast to bring you by the Spirit from one glory, glorious glimpse of Jesus Christ to another. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, a rope of three strands is not easily broken. I use this verse in every one of my wedding ceremonies. And what I love about it here is not, not in the context of, of marriage. I love it in the context of it reminds us of the work of the triune God to bring us to heaven. Think about how God, one God in three persons, will cause us to arrive in heaven. God the Father chooses to bring us into his family before the world is created, before you did anything bad. Anything good. God the Father was at work in your life. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, dies on a cross to pay the penalty for all our sins. And where we're loving today, God the Spirit enters our body and seals us so that we are guaranteed to arrive in heaven. So here's the deal. God is not going to choose you, send His Son to bleed for you, and indwell you with his spirit only to one day say, I'm not coming back for you. The spirit is the guarantee that God will keep his promise and come back. And that's what you're longing for today. All the longings you feel today of, I want to be done. Did you feel that today? I want to be done with my body and its weakness and its frailty and its temptations and its doubts. The Holy Spirit is the one that's working in you to produce this longing for your next body, your final body. This is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For while we are in this tent, this body, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We want that body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Let me tell you something. Before this day is out, you're going to fail God. Before the week is out, you'll fail God in many ways. I will fail God in many ways. But each time you confess that sin by the prompting of the Holy Spirit... He will remind you that his presence in your life is a guarantee that he will not give up on you. Even when you give up on yourself, 
even when you can come up with a hundred arguments of why He should give up on you, the Spirit's pledge, deposit, earnest in your life is a guarantee that God will not give up on you. The Holy Spirit is an engagement ring promising that the wedding will occur. And you'll be there. The final book of the Bible talks about the great wedding where Jesus Christ is brought together in a great wedding festival with his church. And the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring that says, you will be there. And I will not let you miss the wedding feast of the Lamb. So now you understand when Paul says, for this reason I'm praying big, that's what he means. All of that is in the word, for this reason. I'm asking great and mighty things to happen because of the great and mighty things that are done by Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's just read his prayer. We won't get into a lot of it today. Take our time through Easter and beyond. But let's just read the prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. Can't wait to celebrate that with you next week. The hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You need to remember when you're reading the letter to the Ephesians, you're reading a letter written by the Apostle Paul and he's not been in that city for four years. He preached there and he stayed there for three years, but he's been gone. He's in prison. He's in prison because of his faithfulness to Christ and his public proclamation of the gospel. He's in prison. And so he doesn't know these people anymore. He just hears about them. And what does he hear about them? He hears two things that are going on in the church. I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. You're looking for a definition of a Christian today? There it is. A, a Christian is somebody who's welded to Jesus Christ by faith and welded to his church in love. Truth and love. Truth and love. I love what Richard Phillips says. Truth without love is not Christian truth. And love without truth is not Christian love. So if you were to ask the Apostle Paul what excites him about this church, he would tell you it's their deep faith in Jesus Christ and their intense love for one another. Somebody asked me the other day, they asked me this week in fact, are we going to have a big celebration when we move into the church, the new church building on whenever that occurs? That one almost came out. <laughs> But then I knew I would be the subject of church discipline by Dan. 
So on the day that we have our first Sunday, it's going to be a big celebration. And my response, things could change. My response is, I doubt it. Because that building is not what excites me about you. What excites me about you is your intense faith in Jesus Christ and your intense desire to serve one another and this city and world. That's what I want to celebrate. Faith in Christ, love for one another. That's 10,000 times more exciting to me than even that beautiful, beautiful, renovated structure that we're going to move into on The Twitter world has been blown up this week by an interesting thing. And, and I really, I don't pick on fellow pastors a lot, and I'm not going to destroy this guy. It's just interesting, and maybe laugh instead of cry, but there's a church about 2,000 miles west of here that so much wanted to impress its culture that it changed its entire worship platform into a basketball court to celebrate March Madness, the NCAA tournament. And, and while the pastor is preaching, he's playing basketball to relate to his culture. And so, so there's him shooting hoops during church. And of all the tweets that people said about this, the one that I thought was just most striking was this. If your church is about applauding an old guy in white pants who's showing off his bad basketball skills, count me out. So the only thing we've ever wanted Hope Point to be about was to promote, to help you have an intense faith in Jesus Christ who should be the focus of the service. And... That faith resulting in you desiring to imitate his love by the way that you lay down your life for one another. Paul said, I am so impressed because I hear about your faith in Christ and your love for one another. So what does Paul pray specifically about this church? Well, he, he said, I simply want you to enjoy God more and more and more and more. That's his first prayer of the four prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Father, uh, that, the God of, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Holy Spirit who will give you wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. When Paul says, I want you to know God better, I can assure you he's not saying, um, you need to go take a, the next course in systematic theology. When Paul talks about knowledge of God, he's talking about relational knowledge, personal knowledge. We were at the Campus Crusade banquet last night, and one of the girls said the thing that attracted her, she was giving her testimony, one of our USC Upstate student said, the thing that attracted me to Christianity was I heard a Christian talking as if they had coffee with Jesus yesterday. 
relational knowledge, personal knowledge, experiential knowledge. Jesus Christ has made it possible for you to personally know the creator of the universe. And that's the knowledge that counts. John 17, 3, on the last night of his life, Jesus prayed for the church. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you're not in love with Christ, let me tell you something. If you're dealing with a, a continual sin in your life right now, if you're not in love with Jesus Christ and you're not seeing God more and more, you will be overtaken by the world. Will you be overwhelmed by the temptations of your flesh? You can't resist until you know God, what He's done for you, who He is. The sad state of our culture and the culture even within the church is attributed to only one thing, and that is our lack of knowledge of God. Augustine said it this way, just as the sun is not seen by the blind, though they are clothed with it, with its rays, so is the light of truth not understood by the darkness of folly. God is all around us. C.S. Lewis says the world is crowded with God. And the majority, all of the world, and even many in the church, do not see him. So Paul first prays, I want you to know God better. I want to read to you brilliant restatement of this by D.A. Carson. The one thing we most urgently need is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. We think rather little of what He's like, what He expects of us, and what He seeks in us. We are not captured by His holiness and love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination. We are selfishly running after God's blessings without running after Him. We are worse than the man who wants his wife's services without ever making the effort to know and love his wife and discover what she wants. We are worse than such a man, I say, because God is more than any wife. He is perfect in his love. He has made us for himself, and we are answerable to him. So how... How about you? Would you say today, I know God well enough? I know you don't. Your attitudes would be different. Your actions would be different. Everything would be different about all of us if we knew God better. The one thing we most urgently need is a deeper knowledge of God. You know the one thing I don't need in my life? I'll tell you the I tell you what I do. I don't need more information about God. You know what I need in my life? More adoration of God. Not information, adoration. You know, we move, when we move into the new building, everybody's going to have lots 
of wonderful, welcomed opinions about what we should be doing now that we have a building, what we should be focusing on. Some will say we should be teaching more and more books of the Bible in the new building. We should be, because of the resistance of our culture, intellectually, we should be teaching more and more courses on apologetics. We'll be closer to the CPC, so we should be more involved in the pro-life movement. We should instantly, because of the nature of our community, be much more involved in racial reconciliation. All of these things are good. But I am telling you the greatest need of this church called Hope Point is a devotion to knowing God better so that we might love Him more. The greatest need in our life is to know God better. You know the wonderful thing about Pursuing the knowledge of God, the more you know God, the more you want to know God. You come here two Sundays in a row, it makes you want to come four. You come here four Sundays and you'll want to come eight. You come eight and you'll want to stay here forever. It's insatiable. Satisfaction, knowing God leads to a desire to know Him so much more. Well, let me close this message by saying... The greatest way that we can love each other, hear me on this, the greatest way we can love each other is to pray for each other to know God better. Paul says, I keep asking, I keep praying the same thing. I keep praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Our spiritual blindness is so intense that unless the Holy Spirit, day by day, week by week, through teaching, through music, through conversations... Unless the Holy Spirit opens miraculously, supernaturally our blind eyes, we will not know God. A paraphrase of Charles Spurgeon talks about how much the Holy Spirit is needed in what we do. You would have more success in teaching a lion to become a vegetarian than to win a man to Christ through eloquent speech. I'm telling you, the greatest need of this church is not biblical teaching. The greatest need of this church is not phenomenal, creative, refreshing, lyrically deep music. The greatest need of this church is for the teaching and the music to be empowered by the Holy Spirit through your prayers. I mean, even look at the Apostle Paul, what he did in the, in the way that Ephesians is laid out. 200 words. I'd give anything in the world if I had written those 200 words in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I'd be done with pride, but I wish I'd written them. 
I just wish I could talk. So Paul lays out this eloquent description of the Christian life. And right after he says it, he goes immediately to prayer because he knows eloquence is not enough. He wants the Holy Spirit to heat up those words until they become real and experienced in your life. My brothers and sisters, what's the plan for the new building when we move in on? What's the building? What's the plan? I'm begging you between now and that glorious date of unveiling. (laughs) I am begging you, would you please let Ephesians chapter 1, not me, Ephesians chapter 1, remind you to recommit, refocus the entirety of your life on praying for each other. It's like, what are we missing right here? What? So many great things are going on at Hope Point, but what, what's missing? What's missing in our impact in the city, our impact violence and impact and destroyed homes and impact and sad marriages and impact and addictions and suicide and a lost and dark city and what's missing in the extravagant joyful avalanche of financial giving in all of God's churches What's missing is a lack of prayer by the body of Christ for one another. So please reroute your day, reroute your life to begin praying just as you would see in Ephesians chapter 1 for one another. The greatest work of God ever that touched the world was, of course, the Reformation in the 16th century. And it's just no coincidence that The one who led it, Martin Luther, said, I have so much to do, I need to spend most of my morning in three hours of prayer. John Calvin rose every morning at 4 a.m. to pray. The great awakening that swept for the New England states, led by Jonathan Edwards, who spent days walking through nature, contemplating God and praying. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of the famous 10th Presbyterian Church in in Philadelphia, said he could often be found on Saturday night kneeling beside every pew in his church praying for who would sit there the next day. That, would, that might be fun in the new building, won't it? To be able to be able to come there and throughout the week and pray for those who sit on chairs. In 1933, <clears throat> The German Lutheran Church sold out. Totally fell into the deception of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi leadership movement. And they sold out and they supported the Nazi movement. The German Lutheran Church sold out. But there were a group of ministers who knew what Hitler was up to and they pulled out. And they committed themselves to forming seminaries to train the next generation of ministers after the war. And they started what became known as the Confessing Church. And they chose a theological professor in Berlin named Dietrich Bonhoeffer to be the leader of the seminary there in Finkenwald. 
The seminary didn't last very long, only two years before the Gestapo was discovered and then shut it down and arrested about 27 of the pastors. But while Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to teach those men, he said, you need to form your church on three things. Biblical teaching, constant prayer, and memorized and applied confessions of the church that teach theology. So I want to end with two Bonhoeffer quotes about what I want from you, what I want from myself. Boy, they're both crazy convicting. <clears throat> a congregation that does not pray for the ministry of its pastor is no longer a congregation. And I regret that I have not begged you for prayer more. Your staff is in desperate need of prayer. A church that doesn't pray for its leadership is no longer a church. And a pastor who does not pray daily for his church is no longer a pastor. And I ask your forgiveness for spending so much time studying and writing, emailing and texting and phone calls. And I recomm recommit my life to praying better for you because you desperately need to know God better. And so do I. Final Bonhoeffer quote. A Christian fellowship lives, a church lives and exists by the intercession, the praying of its members, one for another. Our hope for Asheville Highway is the mutual prayers of you for me, me for you, and you for one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your sovereignty you have chosen people in Spartanburg, South Carolina to be included in your kingdom. I thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ to provide a fountain by which we can wash our guilt away. And thank you for sending the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that we will be sealed and kept until we walk into the city of God. Lord, until then, the work that you set before us is immense. To engage our culture, to speak the gospel to those whose minds are hardened by cynicism and whose bodies are darkened by immorality. We will never make a dent in broken families and broken hearts. We'll never be able to comfort the weeping and we'll never be able to go after the straying unless the Holy Spirit does a new work in this church and through this church in this city. So now, Lord, we open our eyes and ask that we would know you better. Deeper affection, deeper appreciation, deeper devotion, 
as the Holy Spirit helps us see our hope, our inheritance, and power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Our Savior, our King, amen.